specifically welcome to part two of our two-part multi-part series called on the fascist hordes um if you tuned in for part one uh, we went through the first seven tenets of um, umberto echo's ur fascism where he describes the 14 universal tenets in every fascist movement um and we asked ourselves and i asked you the question about you know is fascism new to America, right? Is this a new wave of ideology that stems from uh, political divides that have grown larger and larger every year? Or is this something that has kind of been embedded in the United States for generations? Uh, so I want to start with giving you an example of the argument that I'm going to make is that this is something that's more so been embedded in the American psyche or American ideology for many years. Um, there is a author, Jared Yates Sexton, whose uh, Twitter handle is at JY Sexton. That's S-E-X-T-O-N. Um, who's a political, ana political analysis. He's an author, um, right? He's written a, a couple of solid books, right? For example, the book American Rule. Um, he has a Twitter thread starting in July 6th um, that talks about how conspiracy theories uh, fuel fascism and how the right wing uses and the right wing uses paranoia as a weapon and white supremacy as a weapon as well. Right. And he kind of trace and show some parallels between the kind of modern day conspiracy theory factories like QAnon, right. Which if you know anything about the QAnon conspiracy theories, that junk is crazy. It's a little too in-depth. It's also anti-Semitic, right? And Jared points out, uh, Jared Sexton points out the, the overwhelming theme of anti-Semitism in a lot of these conspiracy theories. And he parallels this QAnon, QAnon nonsense to um, the early pushes during the beginning of the 20th century by folks like Henry Ford, right? Now I mentioned this in that first episode, Henry Ford, who pushed anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories. Uh, for example, a conspiracy theory called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, right? Which stated that Jewish people were attempting to use the First World War as a way to take over Europe and the world and gain profit and power. Um, this really ridiculous notion of anti-Semitism that has existed in Europe and the United States for many generations. But then over time, it evolved into connecting other groups of people like, quote unquote, the socialists, the leftists, the communists, right? And even in some instances going as far as connecting other people of color, right? Particularly uh, African-Americans and migrant workers um, to these ideologies, right? 
And so the interesting thing about all of this um, is that nothing's new under the sun, right? Is that we're seeing a repetition of the same anti-Semitic, anti-Black, anti-Left ideologies, right? And there's always a new level that's added to it, right? There's the the anti-Muslim, the Islamophobic level that's added to it, right? Um, then it gets in specifics to the the anti-immigrant, particularly anti-migrant um, workers from Central America. And, and the interesting thing about it, um, the interesting thing about it is that uh, there's also levels of religion that are added to it. And so... Jared Sexton, he basically draws a connection between the fascist rumor mill, and that's a really, really basic way of putting it. And actually, I'll recant that. It's not a rumor mill. It's something much more dangerous, right? This fascist fantasy of these hordes of other people, right? The Jews, the socialists, the communists, the blacks, the union workers, right? that these hordes of people are coming to rob you of your way of life, right? Hitler said that they betrayed Germany and were the reason why Germany lost the First World War, right? Um, Henry Ford said that it was an attempt to take over America and kill the American way. And now with things like QAnon being supported by higher up leaders in the American right, for example, the orange guy who's currently president, um, who won't disavow QAnon ideology um, and even invites politicians who support QAnon conspiracy theories to the White House um, to see his RNC speech, right? It is the same thing all over again. It's a very unhealthy uh, obsession with a plot. And so let's go back to the list to get the final seven tenets that Umberto Eco talks about. Just a reminder, just in case you didn't watch this first episode, please go back and watch it. But Umberto Eco is a Italian gentleman who immigrated to the United States. Um, and he was a young man, a younger boy, when Benito Mussolini became the fascist dictator of Italy. And in 1995, he writes... Uh, an essay on er fascism or eternal fascism. And he lists out 14 tenets of fascism that are universal to every fascist movement. Right. And so uh, another reminder, I'm using the abridged version of that essay uh, from openculture.com who the folks at open culture link the original essay, um, but also give you a very brief some summary uh, of these particular tenets. And I think they do a really good job of capturing these 14 tenets fairly quickly. So we left off on number eight, right? And this one uh, is so glad I left off on this one. And I think this is so important and I'm going to show you directly how it connects to the American political system. Um, Number eight, the enemy is both strong and weak by a quote, by a continuous shifting of rhetorical focus the enemies are at the same time too strong and too weak, end quote. This is exactly what we're seeing from the American right. So what Umberto Eco is saying is that the fascists want to appeal to paranoia and want to appeal to fear, but also want to appeal to the warlike nature uh, of a populace. 
and they want to stoke the flames of aggression while also stoking the flames of paranoia. And so what they do is they present to you an enemy that is both so strong that they're going to take over your way of life and rob you of your rights and harm your children and wives and et cetera. But they're so weak minded that they have a weak political philosophy that's not true to the real ideology. They're not real men. They're not real blooded countrymen. Right. Sound familiar? Right. This is exactly what the alt-right and not even the alt-right at this point, the uh, the entirety of the American right seems to be engaging in this pro- type of propaganda where on the one hand, liberals and socialists and millennials are weak, soft build, right? They use the term, and I hate the term so much. They use the term libtard, right? Snowflake, right? These weak-minded individuals who aren't real men, right? Or real Americans. They wouldn't survive in the America of our grandfathers, right? Um, And they talk about how weak these individuals are, but then they flip it during campaign speeches and things of that nature, they talk about how, but these people are going to descend upon Washington DC in hordes, right? And they're going to um, take over the government and they're gonna slaughter your children in the street, right? Like these are the type of messages that they send. Like if you look at Donald Trump's most recent campaign ads, right? It shows the chaos of um, riots and protests that broke out in places like Chicago, places like Charlottesville, et cetera. And it says, this is Joe Biden's America. You're not safe, right? The socialist order and the liberal order is going to um, attack you and drag you through the street and take your guns, right? It's this duality that uh, doesn't really exist, right? How can somebody be so weak that they're weak-minded and both mentally and not physically or emotionally capable of being a strong, true American, But then at the same time, they're so strong that they're a threat that you have to vote for Donald Trump. You have to get more guns. You have to protect your streets. Right. It's the American right and particularly Trump's Republican Party that is trying to appeal and sensationalize both paranoia and rage. Number nine, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. Quote, for Earth fascism, there is no struggle but life, for life, but rather life is lived for struggle, right? Um, This is something that is dangerous that kind of gets engaged both in the American right and in politics in general, right? Is that sometimes politicians try to sensationalize and prey upon the struggle, right? Um, But particularly with fascists do is that the idea is that you should always be doing your best to protect the American way and struggle to maintain the American way, whether that be struggle economically, struggle politically, or even in some instances, struggle physically with other people, right? Physical violence may be the answer. And so it it pops up in folks like Donald Trump, who, if you look at, there's a whole compilation video of him, where he talk, how he talks about people who oppose him at his rallies when he was running for president, right? He talks about how back in the day, those people used to get beat up. And he was like, well, if I wasn't up here, I would go down there and you know, I would kick his you-know-what, right? This is this idea that being pacifist and you know, thinking about actions, right? We talked about in the last episode, um, the, the fourth and third tenet, which talks about the call of action for action's sake and the disagreement is treason, 
right? This pacifism, this ninth tenet flows right into that, right? If you're thinking and trying to make peace and trying to compromise, you're betraying your country, right? You're aligning yourself with the enemy by trying to make ends meet, by trying to find a middle ground. And so it's all or nothing with the American right and the alt-right, with Trump's Republican Party, right? Uh, Number 10, contempt for the weak. Quote, elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology, right? It's amazing how, uh, again, like the eighth tenet talks about strong and weak. When we talk about that weak element, um, elements of these this kind of proto-fascist movement in America have talked about social groups like the blacks um, and keyword, the blacks. That's how they refer to us, right? Um, not African-Americans, not black people. They refer to us as the blacks. Um, social groups uh, like black Americans, social groups like the disabled, right? Uh, social groups like the poor, right? They have convinced poor people, poor Americans, that it is weak to be poor. It is weak to be a minority. It is weak to be anything but a strong, true-blooded, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? And so it's a contempt for this weakness that makes these masses despise people who are different from them. Number 11, everybody is educated to become a hero. Quote, in ur-fascist ideology, heroism is the norm. This cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death, end quote. I might get in trouble for saying this, and in no form or fashion uh, do I mean this with any disrespect. But in particular, there is a very fascinating obsession with placing military recruitment officers in every high school in America, right? Is it in every high school in America? No. Would they do it if they could? Probably so, right? I remember the Marines coming to my high school to try to recruit. Right. I remember seeing and receiving in the mail uh, recruitment information when I was like 15, 16 about the Marines, about the Army, about the Air Force. Right. Is that there's this obsession with being a true blooded American hero. Right. So there's the one aspect of it that's the military. Right. And no disrespect to any military individuals who have served. Right. My family is a family with a very rich military history. Most of the generations of my family have served as far back as World War One, right? But we have to admit that there's a strange obsession with trying to get young men and young women to join the military at an early age, right? Um, the other aspect of this kind of education to become a hero is the intentional miseducation of our populations, right? We don't educate people how to become better citizens, per se, right? How to improve their lives. We educate them how to be the citizens we want them to be. Um, In a later episode, I will definitely talk more about how the American education system uh, is created not for social advancement, but for maintaining a working populace. But there have been all quotes from kind of quotes from education um, commissioners and things like that that talk about how the purpose of the education is not to create individuals who think freely per se, but individuals who will be fine with living the American way, the American dream. And then the third way that we quote unquote educate people to become heroes or the fascist movement educates people to become heroes is this idea that you have a God given right 
a God-given mandate. Take it further than a right. It's your responsibility to physically defend your country. Even though you have no military training, no security training, no police training whatsoever, they want you to get a gun and they want you to defend your country. Right. And we see the end result of that. Right. We see individuals use cars as weapons, like the murderer who used a car in Charlottesville um, to roll over protesters and um, snuff out innocent life. We see it in places like Kenosha, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Hot take. This young man. Right. This. I'm I'm not even going to call him a young man. He's 17. So he's old enough to know what's going on. Was dropped off. He didn't drive. His mother dropped him off 20 miles away from where he actually lived in another state with an AR-15 with the intent of him defending his community. AKA the intent to use a firearm if necessary. Right? So it is this idea that every American's responsibility is to be a hero that defends their land and their country. Number 12, machismo and weaponry. Quote, machismo implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits, from chastity to homosexuality, end quote. The patriarchy is a thing, obviously. If you're listening to this podcast, nine times out of 10, you probably already know that and probably agree that it's a severe problem, right? The patriarchy exists and is weaponized by the fascist movement, right? You don't want to be affiliated with things that are feminine, right? Which is femininity is considered weak in these kinds of political movements, right? You don't want to be associated with femininity. So femininity is chasteness. Femininity is obviously the feminine aspect of a woman or somebody who identifies as a woman, right? And not all women are feminine, but like the the kind of standard stereotypical perspective of this is femininity is automatically always equated with women. And homosexuality, right? Being a part of the LGBTQIA community is associated with femininity, right? So this fascist ideology and not even just in fascism, it's more of a patriarchal ideology that pervades both the American right and in, in many instances, the American left um, is anti-feminine and has to show it's anti-feminine through any means possible, right? Through the degrading of women and femininity, as well as the open homophobia and transphobia that exists in the American right. Um, their political ideology and not just their ideology, even in their rhetoric. Right. And so they weaponize this machoism, this machismo and use it as a way to, again, show who's the weak people in the country. Number 13, selective populism quote, there is in our future, a TV or internet populism in which the emotional response of a selected group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. End quote, a.k.a. Fox News, right? <laughs> or the One America Network, which Trump helped establish, right? It's this idea that there are news medias that are presenting one side of the story as the only story, right? And sometimes the American left can be guilty of this. And when I say the American left, I don't mean true leftists in this instance. 
I mean, more so the liberal and moderate wings of the Democratic Party is sometimes guilty of this. But I, I will say that there's a distinct difference between showing a favoritism or skew towards a specific ideology versus blatantly lying and twisting factual information to make your view the only view that people get. Right. And so a part of the the proto-fascism in America is that you should only watch Fox News because Fox News is the only thing that's going to tell you the truth. Or you should only read Breitbart because Breitbart is the only true media. Everything else is what? Fake news. Right. I mean, it, it's almost too easy to draw the parallels. Like, And, and when I decided to do this episode, um, and we'll get into the, the 14th tenet, but before I do that, when I decided to do this episode, I, I was like, man, am I being paranoid? Am I, am I being a sensationalist? And then the more I read and the more I looked at uh, Umberto Eco's words, the more I looked at the words of Jared Sexton, right? The more I did my own investigation into the rise of alt-right ideology, right? The rise of neo-confederate ideology, the rise of neo-Nazi ideology, and how it went from being fringe to almost being mainstream, right? The amount of dog whistling that takes place in the political speeches of the American right is disturbing. And so when I looked at that and started piecing that together, I went from being in a place of, oh man, I'm just being paranoid. Maybe it's not as bad to being alarmed in the sense that there is a possibility that fascism has already become a concrete staple in the American political spectrum. And not fascism in the in the sense like we talked about in the first part where I said it's not Nazis marching up and down the street, right? We've had that in Madison Square Garden in the 1930s, right? It's not Nazism per se, but it's its own unique brand of fascism, its own unique brand of authoritarianism, right? And the reason I keep calling it proto-American fascism is because I don't know if it's necessarily fully developed, right? Fascists have the tendency not to want to hide their ideologies. And there are still people who cling to certain fascist ideology that are still very ashamed or secretive about putting it in the public. So I don't know. You can think I'm paranoid. Sometimes I still think I'm paranoid. But in reality, if you look at, I guess we could call it the raw data, there's something there, right? And and I think every reasonable person should be concerned that the American political spectrum has become so hostile and divided that fascism may have a very comfortable home in the American ideology, right? Like, for me, as a black person in America, this divide isn't anything new, right? But my hope was that as we progressed in an age of knowledge and science being more accessible to all peoples, that maybe there would be more and more people awakening to the fact that there needs to be a significant change in American politics. And there are a lot of people who are waking up to that. But at the same time, there are a lot of people who are embracing authoritarian fascist ideology in the American right. It's interesting. So the 14th and final tenet is Earth Fascism Speaks Newspeak. Quote, all the Nazi or fascist school books made use of an impoverished vocabulary and an elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments of complex and critical reasoning. End quote. I'm going to be quick on this one. 
there, there's not a lot of intellectualism in the American fascist movement, right? Some people have tried to present themselves as such, like Richard Spencer, for example. Richard Spencer uh, being a white supremacist um, who was almost integral in the it was integral in the coining of the term alt right and in its kind of public rise. He tried to present himself as almost a scholar, right? This young millennial businessman that was being reasonable, right? Like he had read books and he had logical reasoning for his white supremacist beliefs. But if you look at places like Breitbart, if you look at what goes on on the internet, for example, uh, amongst some of the American far right, it's not very complex thinking. It's not very complex language, right? They're not talking about social constructs and uh, social welfare, right? They're not talking about the isms, right? In depth, they're not talking about the multi-complexity levels of the connections between and intersections between classism, racism, uh, sexism, right, homophobia, etc. Right? They're not having these in-depth, critical conversations that have a level of analysis. No, it's very short. It's very broken. It's very upfront. We hate these people. I don't like this person. These people are trying to do this, right? It's not critical thinking. There's no reasoning behind the ideology. I feel this way because I'm a true red-blooded American, and any true red-blooded American should feel the same way. There's no interrogation of information. There's no interrogation of evidence. There's no dialogue, right? And that's important to the fascist movement, particularly for the leadership of these fascist movements, is because if you keep people uninformed, if you keep people undereducated, if you keep people in a constant state of rage, right? Then you can make them into your weapons. And that's what fascists have done for generations, right? Is that they've weaponized the rage and general concern of the general populace and made them weapons of warfare, whether it be internal warfare against other groups of people in the society or warfare on a mass scale where we see, for example, Nazi Germany, right? Created a massive war machine out of this ideology. So that's the 14 tenets um, that Umberto Eco discussed. I would openly advocate anybody to read the full essay um, that he wrote. You can go to openculture.com and there's a 2016 article titled Umberto Eco makes a list of the 14 common features of fascism. And it has a link to the full essay if you want to read the full essay. But to wrap up, I kind of want to go a little bit in depth for a second at what my projection is for the fascist movement in America. All right. One, I believe that American ideology, American principles have devolved or maybe naturally progressed into authoritarian proto-fascist ideology. And so with this current presidential election, um, we're kind of repeating 2000. 16, in my opinion, where we have to pick the lesser of two evils. And when I say we, I mean, there's a considerable power portion of the population, uh, socialist, communists, um, progressives, and particularly young black progressives, for example, um, that feel very disenfranchised by this choice, right? We have to choose between an American right that is becoming increasingly more and more violent versus the the kind of lukewarm liberal moderate candidate in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris 
that are, as Dr. King put it, the real threat to progress. A not not the only real threat, but a real threat to progress, because the moderate is more concerned about law and order as opposed to real justice. Right. Look at Joe Biden's record when it comes down to prison reform and criminal justice. Look at Kamala Harris's prosecutorial record. Right. And there's good things in their records and there's bad things in their records. But when we look at it wholesale, right, we look at the whole picture. A lot of us young black progressives, young black socialists, young black communists, and not even just black, but like people of color and even young white progressives and young white socialists and not not just young people, socialists in general, communists in general, right? There's a large block of the American left and the Democratic Party that Democratic Party that's looking at this choice and saying, wow, we're not even really choosing. We're being forced to check a box because we don't want straight up fascism to be the the ruling power in America. And so here's what I think happens in 2020. Scenario number one, Donald Trump wins the presidency, right? Because the Democrats have bad campaign strategy, just like they did in 2016. Wins the presidency. And I think he only stokes the flames of fascism and stokes the flames of um, hatred even more, right? And please understand, I don't think that Trump is the core of the problem. I think Trump is just a symptom. Trump is representative of where, where American ideology has been for many generations, right? So that happens. And I can't tell you what happens post-2020 when we get to 2024. Who knows? Scenario two is that Joe Biden wins the election. And what happens is a lot of liberals, a lot of moderates, even some progressives, take that as a victory over fascism. And don't do the necessary work of making sure that we re-educate the populace of this country to reject fascist ideology. And what happens is we end up with more Trump-like candidates or worse, somebody who's more competent than Trump but shares the same evil ideologies popping up in governor's races, in state legislative races, in mayor's races, right? And eventually in the presidential race again. And we risk an even more violent, even more dangerous, even more aggressive American fascist movement, right? Just because Joe Biden's president doesn't mean that the three, just because Joe Biden is president doesn't mean that um, fascism is somehow over, right? It doesn't mean that the people in the American rural South are going to stop being anti-Black. It doesn't mean that... um, folks are going to stop buying into these QAnon anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, right? If anything, in my opinion, it emboldens them even further, right? So it's a real catch-22 scenario where um, we have to choose between enabling fascism directly or giving it the fuel that it needs to create an even more permanent space in the American political spectrum. I don't know. My hope is that we will continue on the American left, the real left, right? The socialists, the communists, the progressives, right? That we will continue our fight of creating a more equitable society. And we will open our doors and ears to hearing other people and educating them 
on what they need to know, right? Because that's the key to all of this is that a better educated American populace is a less uh, populace that, in my opinion, is less likely to become a fascist populace, right? Less likely to become an authoritarian populace, right? Uh, Because if you look at, uh, in most cases, in a lot of different places where authoritarianism has come into control of the government, a lot of the people who've opposed it have been intellectuals and educators, right? So the more educated people are, the more likely they can dissect and compromise, uh, in my opinion. But I hope you've enjoyed this two-part series on fascism. Um, I 100% believe that I will have more conversations related to this topic later in more podcast episodes. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in. Please hit that subscribe button uh, so you can get updates when I drop new episodes. I'm going to try to drop as many new episodes as possible within the next upcoming week. Uh, To round out this total, I'm at three total episodes right now. I kind of want to See if I can push it to maybe 10. We'll see. But thank you so much. This has been uh, Rebellion on the River. I want you to stand up tall and proud. Right.